You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. I invite you to take the scriptures out. If you don't have one, find one in a seat and head to Joshua chapter 10. We're still in 10. We took last week, kind of took a break uh, over here in our fake lake in this area, but we're back. We're back to finish up chapter 10 this week. Joshua 10, 28 is where you can head. We'll read from that. Um, we've got some pictures from two weeks ago, and I just saw these on the clipboard. I don't know who drew these. You guys will know. Can you see it? You can kind of see them. There's four of them, and they're all kind of similar. Maybe it's the same, the same author or artist. Uh, there's five here, crowns, five kings. Remember the five kings that they hung on the trees and killed from these, these nations? There's five over here. Um, it's a little more faint. You can keep going to the next one. There's five here and there's five here. So we got that there's five kings that, that were uh, killed outside that cave. Remember, they trapped them in the cave and they, and they killed them from these different regions. And whoever anonymously uh, do, drew these and I put them up there, I thought, well, we'll put those up there for this week. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in chapter 10. So just the background, why these five kings, remember Gibeon had made that uh, or Israel had made that covenant with Gibeon. They shouldn't have made it, but they did, and God was working through this, uh, even so. And Gibeon says, hey, we're being attacked. Israel comes to their rescue, and Israel ends up um, just going through, and God sends those large like hailstones or great stones. The sun stands still for the day. That, that, um, and so there's this great defeat they they work through that and then these five kings later on we looked at these five kings that are held outside of a out of a they thought they could hide in a cave they can't they're ended they they're found and uh, they eventually bring them out have to do some more fighting bring these kings out hang them they're dead throw them back in the cave roll the stone over it and they're done and, and they're there forever um and then that's where we get to where we're at in verse 28 so that's kind of the background, all this fighting, this war, this battle. And if you're into that, it's going to continue. So you're going to keep hearing it. And so let's read God's word then, starting in 28, and I'll, and I'll finish through the chapter. And you're going to hear repetition in here. And, and I want you to listen for that um, uh, over and over. So listen to Israel, God's work as they go here. So Joshua 10, 28 kind of pick up in the story. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. And Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. 
And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Edglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its kings and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Let me pray for us as we look at God's Word. Lord, again, we're, we're thankful. Your graciousness allows us to even read this text before us. And we have this text, and we have so much of Your revealed Word right before us. On a phone, in our lap, however we have it. Lord, You're gracious, and so we thank You. Lord, I pray in this time that You'd give us by Your Spirit understanding of the words that You've spoken here, that we would come away... Um, encouraged and built up, Lord, and how to encourage to obey and follow through with, uh, to come under you as our God and encouraged of the God of whom we speak, of whom Israel uh, had fighting for them. So Lord, I pray today that your name would be exalted and you'd be glorified in our time together as we just think about your word right now. Please guide us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're kind of on the tail end of the 4th of July week or weekend, so to speak. Maybe some consider it last weekend, but uh, it's close enough. So I got found an article by uh, writer Allison Pataki, and it's entitled, Five Times the American Revolution Almost Failed. So here's five times. I'm not going to read you all five. You could find it online, but here's one of them. But she writes about five times the American Revolution almost didn't happen. And this is one of them, and it's the account of the Battle of Brooklyn Heights. Maybe if you're a history nut in that, you'll remember this, this battle. Um, it's pretty uh, unique. And so let me read to you just her writing here. She says, It looked to the world as if the American Revolution might be over just a month after the Declaration of Independence. So think about that. One month, sign it. One month later, August. The Battle of Brooklyn Heights dealt a nearly fatal blow to the Patriot War effort in August of 1776. General George Washington, fresh off the victorious siege of Boston, watched as the British turned their might toward taking the critical port of New York City. Washington's men quickly lost ground on Long Island, Manhattan, 
Staten Island, and elsewhere around New York's harbor. Soon, Washington and his ill-trained army were surrounded, backed up against the East River in Brooklyn Heights. The British dug in, preparing for a slow and patient siege, during which time they would break the will of the unruly colonial army and force Washington to surrender. Victory for Washington at this point, and America for that matter, seemed pretty uncertain. And there's a question I think we want an answer to, even ourselves. How will I know, how will we know if it's all going to work out? These uncertainties. Perhaps there's an uncertainty in each of us, either a relationship or a conflict, a difficult decision, whether this will work out or not, will I, or even as we think of our spiritual lives and our sin, will I ever get over this particular sin? Really, is there hope in the midst of battle? And so we're coming back again to Joshua. With that in mind, as we march really with Joshua through the battles and, we, and as the land as he travels, as we've read about, uh, we travel with him in Israel and hope to just glean here from what God has written. As we look at chapter 10, I'm not going to go back and read 28 through 39. You noticed already there's a lot of repetition going on. But before we look at that, just just to give you briefly a view on the map, because I love maps and it's just fun to know where we're at, hopefully. Let's see if my pointer is working today. Do I have a dot? I have no dot. All right, you're going to have to do your best. Here's a map. I tried to draw it. You can kind of see it maybe from there. Uh, the big blue circle over in the top right corner is Gilgal, kind of home base for Israel, though it has a question mark. It could be one other place, uh, but we'll go with there for now for Gilgal. They'd come over to Gibeon, kind of along the, along the top of the square that you have, Gibeon, done the fighting, the hailstones, all that. But you come down here, and you kind of see the area of these places, and I, and I numbered them. You probably can't see that, but there's, they come down to Makeda, and they're dealing with that spot. And then on up to Libna and back over to Lachish and Eglon and uh, where? Over to Hebron and then down to Debir. Um, each of these, some of these places have a question mark. Is it here? Is it there? That sort of thing. But that gives you an idea. We're just kind of to the, uh, be to the west of the Dead Sea in this area. But it gives you an idea of some of the area that we're in. We'll look at another map later on just to see the greater region. But you noticed, hopefully, through there, just so many repeated words throughout here. Um, I didn't write down for today just how many times, but words like they passed on from here to there, or they fought over and over, they fought, or they, they captured, or they struck with the edge of the sword, this town and this place, and they're striking these places, or they devoted to destruction a particular place over and over, or they left none remaining. Or you, there's a kind of a, uh, a wording here, as he had done. So as he had done, as Joshua had done to this town, so they do to the next place and so forth. There's a lot of repetition. In verse 30, there's, there's two repetitions twice, verse 30 and verse 32, that the Lord gave it, or that city, that area, into the hand of Israel. That's specifically dealing with Libna and Lachish. So twice here, The Lord gave, this reminder, the Lord gave. And we've looked at that before. So a question, why why all this repeating? I mean, wouldn't it be easier? Why not just make a list of cities 
you know, Makeda, um, right? Oh, we don't have it up there. Makeda, the order. What's Makeda and from there, Lakish, so forth. Um, and all these, just make a list and then make it one statement of what they did. Why just over and over and over again the repetition? Here's a couple of thoughts. One thought um, from one source talks about this is just the way that battles were described, kind of this repetitive nature. Um, one says the biblical author was well aware of ancient Near Eastern scribal style and practice. This is just how they would write these things and how uh, these things would be written. So it's common. But even in a common way of reporting battles, God is using this, this earthly means, an earthly way of, of reporting, I think, to get across his, me- his message of victory and the taking of these cities. Victory after victory after victory. It just keeps going. But even more so, I mean, that said, if the writers kind of writing like how they would at that date, there's something, I think, even important. And I believe the repetition serves the lesson of the passage. It serves the passage. Reading this account, if you read it just over and over, here they left, they devoted to destruction, the edge of the sword. We almost begin, we get the feeling we're just marching with Joshua to all these different encampments and kingdoms and villages in order to overthrow them. And there's just this systematic march going on. And it leads us to Joshua, Joshua and Israel, who's doing the battle. That's him. And then God, who's giving these places into the hand of Israel. So Joshua does, and God gives. He fights, as verse 42 is gonna, we're going to look at. So Joshua and Israel, they obey. They do these things. They capture, they devote, they fight. Not just once even, not just one battle, but all. And they keep going. There's multiple battles. Multiple battles ensue, and there's multiple victories. If we just pause here, just to take one kind of, just a takeaway, maybe a lesson, in terms of our own spiritual battles, if you will, we see there's not simply just one battle of victory, spiritually speaking, although there's victory in Christ, as we've talked about. But there's multiple. You might say, as we talked about Sunday school a couple weeks ago, daily battles that would come against our walk with God and our confidence in Him daily, at least as we live out this life. So it's not just one and then it's smooth sailing from there. There's these daily battles. Each day has its own unique conflict or its own unique temptation to sin or hardship or its own unique suffering or its own unique questioning or doubt every day. Paul says, even talking about our own flesh, he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So how do we look with hope in, in our seemingly endless skirmishes, if you will, of our own lives, conquering one city, there's a victory, and there's another city, there's another lakeish or Eglon or whatever, and another comes up. And I think these last verses then of this passage, as we look then more at, at verses 40 and, and to the end, I think they give us hope. And, and I'm going to frame it hope in two ways here they might you could say there's there's more or develop this more but we'll go with two ways 
of hope here. One is in verses 40 and 41. I will read that again. Look at verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as uh, Gibeon. I've got one more map for you just to look this up. And this is just a wider region. I'm sorry if you can't see it very well from here. But there's the Dead Sea. We've zoomed out a little bit. And if you kind of took maybe the first third and just drew a line and to the south, that's the area that this is talking about. Some of the, the hill country kind of through some of the middle. The lowland or the Shephala, I think as it's called, the lowland. Uh, the slopes of that. And then the Negev being to the south, which I think means south or dry place. So kind of towards the desert, more towards Egypt. This is a pretty wide area that's in summary here of these are the places that Joshua took. These are the victories. He left none remaining. He devoted them to destruction. And that's what the last part of verse 40 uh, tells us, that Joshua left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed. And then it says this in there, you can see it, just as, so he did this just as, tells us kind of a how did he do it or why, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. I want you to turn just back in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, just one book back, chapter 20. I want to look there because God had commanded, and I appreciate 20, verse 16 is going to be pretty specific and help us see this. There's, there's other places, but this is one of them. Look at Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. If you turn back just probably even a few pages, not very far. Now we've gone back in time a little bit. Moses is commanding Israel. He's concerning, you know, before they go into this promised land. He's talking to them. He's talking about nations that are far away and making peace with them. If they're a nation far away and they want to make peace with you, fine. We talked about that with Gibeon. That's why Gibeon said, we're from far away. Okay, we can make peace with somebody far away. But for those that are near, it was something different. Those nations in the inheritance of what God had given Israel, something different was to happen. So look at verses uh, 16 through 18. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods and so you sin against the lord your god so joshua fast forward and israel along with joshua they're fulfilling they're doing just as god had commanded them that's the command is there that's what they're doing but then again some perspective as we think about what looks to us as a a terrible maybe it looks like a terrible command of utter destruction in this land all that breathed all this life what's going on look back just a little further since we're in deuteronomy look at chapter 9 so just go back again a little further to chapter 9 1 through 5 
why so much destruction? All these places, edge of the sword, everything that breathes. Deuteronomy 9, 1-5 helps with an answer for this. Moses still here delivering God's words. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven. That's, this is what Israel was up against. A people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Now, here's where it gets kind of specific. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. These nations were being judged, judged by God due to their own wickedness. And Israel was the instrument God was using. Israel, they had no basis to stay to these nations. We're better than them. We get to conquer them. It was by the grace of God they were entering. God had made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to bless them, to bless Abraham's offspring. And Israel, as God's chosen possession, His people, they were to obey, to follow, to go, and to conquer. So here's our hope number one. Hope, as we look at this, what's the hope as we look at these skirmishes, these battles? Number one, we're called, we are called by God's grace in Christ to follow God's commands, to do what He has said to do in His Word. God's graciously has not left us to the unknown. Lord, what do you want me to do? I, don't, I look to the sky and that cloud looks shaped a certain way, so I'll do that. He's given us his word, he's spoken, his revelation to us. He's told us what we need to do. And so we, we face these battles, our own daily, whatever, our unknown skirmishes or uncertainties in our own life. And some of them that we may never be certain about. We may never know how is this going to end. But we can face them with God's word. What he said. And then the call on our lives as his blood-bought children through Jesus Christ to follow His Word. He saved us to follow Him, to be disciples. So with this in sight, Israel has followed the commands of God. There's this long list of victories. I think we come to, as we head back to the book of Joshua 10, come to the end, these last two verses, really verse 42, I think a, a climax 
here, a climax, kind of the, the why statement that's behind any and every victory of Israel. So if you're back at Joshua 10, verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. There's a question. As we look at this verse, you see the because. We're going to get there. But who? One question. Who is it? Who is fighting for Israel? Who is this? And it's it explained there. The Lord. You might have all capital letters or might say Jehovah, but the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. That, that's good to understand. We might just read past that and go, well, yeah, of course he did. He's the God of Israel. But think about it. This was not an unknown God fighting for an unknown people. This was Israel's God, their Lord, the Lord. He was the one fighting for them. There was personal connection with this God who fought for Israel. And then the why. The because. So the reason Joshua conquered. Why? Not, not primarily because Joshua was just that good of a general. Or primarily that he had better swords. Or primarily the people of Israel were just that much more skilled. Remember? Wickedness. It's not because they're righteous. Yes, they fought. They struggled. They sweat to take these various places. But the text here gives us the why. Or the cause, the because, the cause of the victory. The decisive cause behind any of their victories. And it was their God who fought for them. Israel was not in the Negev as we looked at, the lowlands, the slopes, the hill country. They were not alone. Their God was with them and He was fighting for them. And it's not just a God or a deity seemed to come with them and Thankfully, they made some progress and had some victory. This was the Lord, the everlasting God. Remember reading about Him last week? Who created, the One who created the heavens and the earth, whose understanding is unsearchable. The God who does not faint or grow weary, who gives power to the faint, and to Him who has no might increases strength. That's the God who fought for Israel. Is He your God? Is that your God? There's a glimpse here in Joshua, and we should see this, of the judgment that all will face before King Jesus. There's, there's a view to that. This, there is judgment going on and wickedness in this land. And it gives us a slice, a picture of that final judgment. Second Thessalonians 1, 8-9 says, that this king was going to come with his mighty angels. And it says this, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Each and every one of us here deserve that same destruction. We deserve what occurred in Hebron or Lachish or Eglon, and yet God is gracious. As Joshua led Israel through the land and through the victories, so, we've talked about him before, a greater Joshua would come, 
a greater Yeshua, greater God saves, Jesus would come. He's come to lead us, to die on our behalf. Through Him, there's no punishment for our sins because He took the punishment we deserved on Himself, our own wickedness on Himself. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You hear the grace in that? The righteous died for the unrighteous. He suffered for our sins that He might bring us to God. That's what Christ did. He suffered that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Do you know God through Christ? Not just know about God or have read about Him. Do you know Him? Have you come in repentance, confessing? Lord, I'm a sinner. I am just as wicked. I'm no different than Hebron or Eglon or Debir, all those towns. In my own heart, I've got just as much wickedness where I've gone astray and confessed and then put your faith in Christ the Savior. Is He your Lord? Verse 43 in our text concludes. It tells us really simply Joshua returned, all Israel with them. They returned to the camp at Gilgal. It, it really concludes this, sec- this section here. Israel is back home, if you will, in a sense, kind of back to main camp. And there's a reminder here, even in this, just by way of application, a, a reminder that just as God was with, with Israel in their own camp, their own household, so He has been with them and fought for them as they travel. Now, you're going to travel to different places this summer, and sometimes it maybe can feel, maybe you don't struggle, sometimes it can feel when you leave your house, like, is God still present in all these places? And He is. It's good to be in, our, in the fellowship of believers. This is kind of home place where we worship and we praise God. And we can get away from that and think, is God with us in those places? He was with Israel here as they went to all these skirmishes, these other places. God was with them. Joshua 1.9, part of it, the last part. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wherever you go. You might say here, along with me, as, we, as I prepare these sermons and look at this, um, does this seem like the same sermon over and over again through Joshua? Is it, it probably, I think Mike's talked about before God fighting for Israel and the victory and so forth. It seems familiar. Or we hear that Joshua obeys and he follows God and God gives the victory. It's not the first time, hopefully, that you've heard that. Or maybe you're, you're here today, oh, okay, I haven't heard that before. It seems in various ways through this book we're working around this idea of trusting and obeying in, in God, obeying Him, all the while understanding that He's the God of our salvation. I think we can say here, I can say without apology, as we continue to work through this book with Joshua, we need to bring to mind, I think to remember daily, in each and every battle, confrontation which we face as believers, we have a great hope. This is something I, I think we forget easily. We can, I can preach about this. You can hear this on a Sunday. Oh yeah, God gives a victory. He's with us. And on Monday, somehow it's just kind of, or Sunday afternoon, 
Is he still with me? Is he still? It's almost like we need to hear it. And I hope that's what we hear as we go through this book again and again. Trust and obey in this God of your salvation who fights for you. We have a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers in Him, we have a hope not in our skill or our exactness or our own perfection, but in the God who fights for us as His beloved people. As for Washington and the troops kind of hemmed in by the British who were going to wait out Washington's surrender, here's what Alison Pataki continues. She says, But Washington had other plans. In the middle of the night on August 29, 1776, he ordered a risky evacuation. He would row all 9,000 of his troops, as well as their critical arms and supplies, across the East River into Manhattan. So Washington, kind of on this, this land area, is backed up, kind of surrounded. The only out is to cross a river into Manhattan, where it is New York, downtown New York City, into Manhattan, and out through there. Okay, gives you an idea of where it's at. And from there, they would escape uh, and march south to New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Absolute quiet, speed, stealth, and pitch darkness were critical. Here's the only problem, she says. The retreat went more slowly than Washington had hoped. I mean, he's got about get 9,000 across a river um, at night. It went slow. She says, stranded with his remaining men in Brooklyn, Washington raced against sunrise on August 30. At any moment, British patrols would spy the retreating army and surely open fire. To Washington's astonishment, a fog rolled into the harbor, obscuring the East River and confusing the British. And Washington used this gift from nature, which I wrote in here, question mark, okay, God, to complete the evacuation. He was the last man to set foot on a retreating boat. And when the weather cleared, the British were stunned to see that the defeated Continental Army had escaped. God, in His providence, allowed these American troops to escape. But it sure looked doomed. It looked without hope. Victories in this life, in this world, seem uncertain. And my call to you in your heart and my heart is to place our surety and our certainty and our hope in the sure one of the Lord Jesus Christ. His word will not fail. His promises will not fail. We're not given answers to every circumstance. Will this work out in this life or not? But we know, who knows, we know the one who knows the end, the Lord our God. His purposes will accomplish what He plans. And when we come upon our own lakishes, our own Eglons or De Beers or whatever it is, our own battles, think of the battles we face of coveting or a quick temper or in-laws or a loss of a job or failure or hatred towards someone or a conflict or sexual impurity or we struggle with fear or anxiety or stress or guilt or joylessness, we can come to them with hope. Hope in God's Word. Follow what He's commanded. Delight in His law. And then hope in the God who fights for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He says this in Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what uncertainty you face, I 
Think of that. Those in Christ will never leave you or forsake you. Until we are with Jesus for eternity, uncertainties are going to remain. But in the midst of them, those in Christ, we have a sure and certain hope in our Savior and Redeemer. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank You that we do not face these daily or minute or hourly struggles alone somehow detached from You, that You somehow called us to be Your children and then just kind of left us on our own to figure it out. Lord, You have called us and then You've given us Your Word. Father, I pray for each and every person in here that Your Word would be precious, that they would be gleaning jewels out of Your Word, or that we would see in Your Word You, not just to gain head knowledge, but to know You. And we cannot know You apart from Your Word, so I pray for that. And I pray as we glean from Your Word, as we see who You are, that You're the Creator of the heavens and earth and You're everlasting and all these attributes of You, that we would take comfort in the God who fights for us. That we would wait on You. Lord, that we would walk forward by faith at times, run forward if we must, trusting You. Lord, that You know the outcomes. and You are a certain Father and a certain Savior in the midst of an uncertain world. Thank you for who you are. We worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.